And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. And welcome. Let me turn that part down. We are live from the bunker once again. Jason Hunt here. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. 32 years in the media, which is these days maybe not as big a heapum deal as as some people might think. But you know, it it means that I know what button to push to turn the microphone on most. Of the time, I guess. Uh, welcome, everyone. The phone number, if you want to be part of the program, Mayberry 426. <coughs> uh, ask for Bernie. Uh, live, if you are uh, here with us live, the chat and the comments are open. We are broadcasting live over on YouTube and Facebook both. And uh, if you are not participating live, you want to leave a comment, you're welcome to do that as well. We also have an email address, live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. And as I have done before, a very, very quick uh, reminder to people that I hate Windows 10. Uh, all it takes is plugging in a webcam and the whole thing is just, uh, it is so buggy. It is so buggy. I don't even know if you could MacGyver a solution for that. See, I, I had to do that because our guest today is the creator of MacGyver, Mr. Lee David Slodov. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jason. Good to be here. By the way, your opening is really cool. I kept waiting for the movie to start. So. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 ha I, have, uh, I have to add production value where I'm able. So, you know, it's, it. it's one of those things. So uh, by way of introduction, let's just kind of go through a little bit on your credentials. Writer on Hill Street Blues, a producer on Remington Steel and the Man from Snowy River TV series. Uh, and of course, the creator of MacGyver, which is the the big the big thing that everybody uh, seems to go back to the original Richard Dean Anderson show. Although there's the remake, they're the one that's currently on the air. And also, uh, you were involved in the Spitfire Grill, which was a, a, a faith based movie, a religious tone, religious themed movie that won several awards. Did uh, got the audience award at uh, Sundance, I believe. So you had a rather extensive career, but everybody knows MacGyver. Is that, is that a bugaboo for you? No, actually not. I mean, I mean, I've enjoyed all the things that I've worked on, but, you know, MacGyver just kind of turned into this global phenomenon. It was, you know, they were of the original series i think there were seven seasons and a couple of tv movies and um and those ended up being sold little literally to something like 70 countries and is pretty much run non-stop around the world for the last 35 years so you know i don't know that you could ask for a whole lot more than that and uh and it's become a you know a verb in the in virtually every dictionary <laughs> in the world so you go 
okay, but but I will say this, you know, I wrote the pilot, um, but I don't consider the success of MacGyver to be mine. Really, that goes to Richard Dean Anderson, all the writers, producers, directors, who really brought that show to life. And the way I think of it is, you know, you have a kid, the kid grows up and does something wonderful. And of course, you're proud because it's your kid, right? But you can't say it's mine. So, you know, and the fact is, the fans around the world made MacGyver a hit. I didn't. So, so it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing on, on, on all accounts. And, uh, and I, I'm happy that it brought so much joy to so many people and continues to do that. So, and you currently have a new book that's set in the MacGyver universe because, uh, and this is, this is something that I that I found interesting when reading the description. It's called MacGyver Meltdown, and if I understand this right, this is set in the universe of the original series. And I think there's what three books that are going to be following the end of the Richard Dean Anderson version of MacGyver. Do I have that right? That's correct. We decided to sort of, you know, there was the there's the reboot series, which has obviously also found an audience because it's now in its fifth season. And, uh, but we thought, you know, there were a lot of fans who really kind of wanted that original series to continue in some way. And so we said, you know what, why don't we just do at least, at least a three book series. There may be more, obviously, depending upon, you know, how people react and respond to it. Um, why don't we sort of pick MacGyver up from the end of that original series, he's a little older. He's kind of in his mid forties now, you know, um, and we said it more or less in present day. So the, this first book, MacGyver Meltdown is kind of set at around 2018 before, you know, the world completely fell apart. Um, but, uh, but we thought, yeah, let's, let's see where this character would go if he's just a little bit older and, and still in the present. So that's kind of what the inspiration was for the book. And honestly, uh, my co-author, Eric Kelly, because I'd never written a novel before. So I thought, you know what? I should really bring in someone who knows how to do this. <laughs> and uh, he was an absolute, you know, godsend because he really understands the form. And he's was obviously very passionate about the MacGyver character. And um, and we just had a blast. I mean, it was essentially how much fun could we have with this? And we we had we had a great time. Now, let me ask you this. Since these since these books pick up the narrative thread from the series, how dependent are they upon that narrative thread? If I pick up this book without ever having watched the show. Are, are readers going to get lost? I mean, I imagine that people are not going to pick this up if they haven't seen the show, if they're not familiar with it. But they're, like you said, this is part of the cultural zeitgeist, you know, this idea of MacGyver taking, you know, rubber band, paperclip, bubble gum, and, and making a bomb out of it and, and that kind of thing, where, you know, the idea of the gadgetry has pretty much surpassed the actual show itself. So it's kind of entered into our collective consciousness. So how many people are going to be able to pick up this book, never having seen the show, and be able to read it? Well, I would say if you've never seen the show and even never heard of MacGyver, it's still a good action-adventure thriller, you know, um, because 
while we keep the universe from the show and the history from the original show, if you've never seen the original show, I don't think it would in any way impair your enjoyment of the book if you like to read, you know, action, adventure, spy, thrillers kind of things, because that's who the character is. And it will become obvious if you're reading the book. It's like, this guy doesn't use a gun. This guy knows how to make stuff happen with whatever is uh, available at hand. And, you know, his personality obviously is preserved. So, so I don't think it's at all necessary, but let's face it, you know, it's, it's MacGyver. And so if you have a friend or a relative, or it's like, we thought, okay, let's see if we get this book out sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it might just make the perfect Christmas gift for somebody who goes, Hey, everybody calls you MacGyver. So here we got your copy of the MacGyver novel, you know, uh, who, who came up with the idea of going back to the well, as it were, is that something that somebody approached you, you had the idea and started kicking it around. Was this kind of one of these, everybody, you know, sitting around the bar, uh, throwing out ideas and suddenly somebody goes, Hey, I have a thought. Well, part of it was we did a, um, we did a comic book series of a guy comic book series a, a while back and that became a graphic novel and, and that did really well. I mean, it sold out. Um, and now it's kind of in the, you know, I think you could still get some of those graphic novels on Amazon, but they're kind of collector's items at this point. And then, you know, as the new series, the reboot came on, started to get sort of hints from the fans of the original series that they go, well, this one, this new series is okay, but it, it's not kind of, it's not quite scratching the itch. You know, we'd really, we'd really like to sort of have a sense of the original show. And that's when I started kicking around the idea of like, maybe, maybe we should do this as a book series. And the only thing that was sort of holding things up was I went, I don't know how to write a book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wrote a nonfiction book. That was my first foray into book writing, but, but I wasn't really a novelist. So I went to a, a good, uh, novelist friend of mine, sci-fi writer named Melinda Snodgrass and said, Melinda, are you free and available? She said, no, I'm, I'm crazy busy. I said, well, great. Do you know someone who you think would be interested in working on a novel with me? Cause I think we should do a MacGyver series of books. And she said, yeah, I know, I know somebody who I think would be perfect. And so she introduced me to Eric and as they say, the rest is history. So how difficult a process was it for you? Because, you know, coming up, it, for a lot of people who have never written the book before, especially in the fiction side of things, the world building seems to be a challenge for some people, story structure and whatnot. I mean, obviously, you've got those chops already in terms of uh, television format and, you know, it A to B to C, we've got to get to the end. But for creating a, a, a story narrative in novel form, was there a lot of catching up, busy work, homework, things to learn, things to unlearn for you? Because, you know, you've been in television for so long. It's a certain format. It's a certain style of writing, whereas prose fiction goes in a completely different direction. How, how, how much adjustment did you have to do? Yeah, I actually was surprised how relatively easy it was. I mean, the way, literally the way we did it was, was back in the day when you could get on planes and be together, you know, Eric 
came and, and spent a long weekend with me and we basically, you know, I work on a whiteboard. So we laid the basic story out, you know, and then and then the biggest difference, I think, between obviously a novel and, and screenwriting is you got to put in a lot more detail. You know, it's got to be a lot more specific, but that's just sort of fleshing out the characters and the scenes and all that kind of stuff. So once you have an arc of a story, you know, then it's like, okay, how do you make this kind of as rich and as textured as you can do it? And and that, you know, being a screenwriter that perennially overwrote all the time anyway and have, would go back and have to kind of trim down and thin out because you go, you know, the director doesn't need to read all of the internal thoughts of the character. <laughs> <laughs> He goes, what is all this stuff? I don't need that's what I got actors for. Right. Okay, fine. I get you. All right. I'll just cut all that out. So so it wasn't really that difficult to transition, but but because I had never really done it before, and frankly, I have a lot of projects that I'm working on, I said, you know, would really I think the smart way to do this would be to start with someone who really understands the form and can say, you know, this is how long chapters should be, this is how long the book should be, this is the kind of depth we should go into in this scene and that scene. And so it was like, that was very helpful because otherwise it probably would have ended up reading if I had just done it by myself as maybe an elongated screenplay, mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't, I really didn't want that. Right. So I wanted it to feel like you were, you were in a novel for sure. And Eric was the one who really brought that to the table, but I wouldn't describe it as difficult. You know, so you mentioned Melinda Snodgrass. She has done tie-in fiction in the Star Trek universe, and having now done tie-in fiction for your own universe, uh, have you been bitten by the bug? Are you wanting to kind of, you know, m maybe pass these first three books, uh, look at other universes you might want to to play in, or you want to just stay in your particular sandbox here? Well, I would say uh, the answer to that is is um, yes, because yes and no. So it was great. To, I mean, look, I wrote the MacGyver pilot 35 years ago. OK, so other than occasional involvements here and there, I hadn't really spent a lot of time with the MacGyver character. So that was really kind of a treat. It's sort of like going back and hanging out with an old friend and, you know, getting to sort of know them all over again. Um, but as a result of this experience, I, I had at, uh, some time ago written a sort of massive historical um, drama um, set in the Byzantine Roman Empire. And I am literally in the process now of closing a deal with a very talented uh, woman writer because the main character of that, of that historical fiction piece is a woman and said, look, I did this thing with Eric Kelly and it worked out really well. Would you be interested in collaborating with me on turning this massive, I wrote a 300 page screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of nuts. Anyway, I said, maybe we should turn this into a series of books and shared the screenplay with her. And she said, absolutely. I, this is just a great story. So, so we're going to start working on that. Hopefully come the, 
come the January 2021. So I'm excited about that. So the answer to your question is, yeah, having done this with MacGyver now, it kind of opened up that world and said, what else do I have that I think might make a good series of books? Now, you make an interesting point there, and I want to I want to follow up not to get into politics of the era, but uh, when you talk about you have a, a, f- a female lead character and you want a woman to write, that kind of goes back to a lot of what we're seeing nowadays in the general social media culture, the cancel culture. People are saying, well, if you're not fill in the blank, you can't write to that kind of story. Do you ever have those kind of concerns when you're coming up with ideas, when you have these different projects that you want to develop, how much does that factor into who gets involved? Do you ever worry about any of that? Um, I don't think I worry about it. I'm a firm believer that a good writer can write anything. You know, you, I don't believe you have to be black to write about an African-American. I don't believe you have to be a woman to write about women, okay? I really... I, I fundamentally believe that we have within us the resources of imagination and potential talent to put ourselves into any kind of character. That said, there is a certain cultural um, hesitation about saying, well, you're a old white guy, you know, why should you be writing about a young woman, you know, who's in, who's in the Byzantine Roman era? Um, To me, it's more saying black writers, female writers, Latin writers, whatever category you want to put them in, they should have more opportunities to be heard and to tell the stories from their point of view. Sure. And so kind of looking at that, I said, look, I know I've created this female character and in this massive historical story, but if I'm going to turn it into a novel, it might be really good to have a woman writer in there because she may feel things, see things, be able to express things that even at my best imagination, I wouldn't necessarily be able to capture. So both to avoid someone saying, well, how dare you write about a young woman when you're an old white guy? Okay, (laughs) part of that is nonsense. But part of that is, well, then why not invite a woman into the process and give her the opportunity to put her stamp on it? So it kind of worked both ways. And reading about the Spitfire Grill as an example of that, if, if, if the story that I read is accurate, you had concerns about that yourself when you were approached for the Spitfire Grill because it was a Catholic organization that was putting together the money for that movie, and you're practicing Jewish. You're, you're, the, the two fa- and your concern was, well, these two faiths aren't exactly compatible are you sure you want me to do it? How did, how did you arrive at the decision to finally go ahead and say, yes, we're going to go ahead and do this? Well, you are correct. As bizarre as it was, um, the people who wanted to make a movie that ended up becoming the Spitfire Grill, uh, it was a Catholic charity. And when they first approached me, I said, look, if you're looking for a religious movie here, I'm, I'm not your guy, you know? And they <laughs> went, no, we're really not looking for a religious movie. <clears throat> We want a beautiful character-driven drama. It's not about faith. We're not pushing, you know, religious values here. We just want a good human, you know, drama story. And I went, okay, well, if that's the case, then we don't have any issues. 
you know, and to their credit, they never during the story process, the script process, the film, you know, the actual production, never once did they come to me and say, oh, you got to do this because, you know, we're a Catholic organization. It's got to say this. Never once did they do that. So they were they were on that uh, scale. They were true to what they had provided me as the opportunity to do it. In that case, what was so unusual was they had money to make a movie and they didn't have a movie. I mean, usually, you know, you write an independent feature, you go looking for money to make the movie. And this was completely the inverse. They said, we have the money, we have no movie. And we want to do this kind of a movie like Tender Mercies or, right. you know, something like that. And I said, well, I love Tender Mercies. You're going to give me the opportunity to try and create a movie like that. I'm all in. And so that was kind of how it happened. And, uh, and once again, you know, as with MacGyver, I sort of dug deep into myself and said, how do I create an indelible character that people will respond to? That was it. There seems to be, uh, every now and again, we'll see spikes in faith-based productions. Kevin Sorbo has been involved in a number of them. And invariably, the, the comment or the discussion will come around to the fact that the faith-based productions... Some sometimes, most of the time, a lot of times are hindered by the message that they're trying to convey because, you know, there's that risk that you're doing this kind of a movie. There's going to be the ABC after school special message that's that's beaten over the head with it. Are are Christian organizations, Christian filmmakers, religious filmmakers who are trying to make those kind of movies what's now that you've done one, you know, you've had that experience. What's the best way to approach those? Because it's, it would seem to me that, that we don't want to make a faith based movie. We want to make a movie that's filtered by our faith based perspective. There's a, there's a very distinct difference in approach. It doesn't seem like all of the, all of the faith based productions seem to have a, a, a handle on that yet. Well, look, it's hard for me to talk about what somebody else has done, but sure. but I think the distinction you're talking about, and this was a conversation I had with, you know, prior to doing the Spitfire Grill. Um, if you're preaching at people, okay, that's very different than saying, I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm going to tell you a story that I think is worth telling, and you can deduce from that anything you want. That's what good art is. At the end of the day, you know, you and I, Jason, could look at the same painting and you go, this says X to me. And I go, well, no, it says Y to me. And that's what makes it a great painting is because it doesn't speak to everybody in the exact same way. If you make something that says, oh, I got to say this in the, so that everybody hears the exact same thing, then I think you're preaching and you're not creating a work of art that's open to you know, the interpretation of whoever sees it. Right. Say, And I was very clear on Spitfire. It's like, I'm just going to tell the best story I can tell. And people can draw from that what they choose to. And and if you come to me and say, well, but this isn't pushing our agenda, then I'm going, then I'm not your guy and I'm not making that movie because I'm not coming in with an agenda. I just have the opportunity to tell a great story. That's what I'm going to do. 
all of your years in Hollywood, and we've seen lately in other entertainment uh, avenues, comic books, video games, uh, literature, you know, we've, we've seen the argument uh, with regard to the Hugo Awards. There are a lot of people that are sitting there saying there's too much of our entertainment media now that are agenda-driven. You know, we have we have the message fiction, and the message is taking priority over telling a good story. It, in your experience being in that process, is there anything to that criticism? Are are we at the point where, and it sounds tripe, the whole you know get woke, go broke type of of aspect of things, where we become so focused on the identity politics and the ideolo- the ideological divides and we're going to tell you what you should think about something and we're surrendering good storytelling for the sake of an agenda have you experienced any of that or is this just a big overblown concern that's maybe a tempest in a teapot i i think um i think it's it feels to me like it's a little bit of an overblown concern. I would say, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, and then I'll go back and talk a little bit about, about what I saw as the biggest shift in Hollywood in, in my time in the business. All right. um, so in the world of musicals right now, for instance, it seems like most musicals that come out, they, they want to write a wrong, you know, they want to, they want to, beat you up and there's an issue in there and you have to face this issue. And we believe it or not, uh, have a MacGyver musical in the works. We did some, uh, workshops of it in, uh, uh, just literally just before the pandemic closed everything down, we were going to do eight workshop productions and we ended up only doing six cause they said, that's it. We got to shut everything down. You're done. Um, and, and it was a very interesting musical theater experience because in every performance, we cast the role of MacGyver out of the audience. So we had a complete novice in this starring role and, and it worked great. And by the way, of those six performances, three of the MacGyvers were female and three of the MacGyvers were male and it made absolutely no difference to the audience. They seemed <laughs> to love it either way. And one of the things that one of the biggest responses we got was this was just fun. You know, you weren't preaching to us. You weren't telling us that we've done everything wrong. You weren't telling us that the world is screwed up. You just had a good time. It's like, yep, that's exactly what we were aiming for. Now, to go back to to I think the deeper aspect of your question. George Lucas, bless his heart, who gave us Star Wars. Okay. When George Lucas made Star Wars and big corporations said, wait a minute, you can make a $10 million movie and it can gross $400 million. That's when big corporations said we should go into the movie business. And that's when uh, Gulf and Western bought Paramount, I think it was. Right. And then various companies bought Sony or Sony bought Columbia and then Coca-Cola owned it for a while. And little by little, all of the movie studios have been eaten by big corporations. And at that point, it used to be that, you know, the people who had who, who, who headed up movie studios, they were just looking for good stories that they thought would attract an audience. Once corporations got involved, 
it wasn't about stories. They looked at movies as products. Okay. And when, by the way, we want to do what George Lucas did. We want to make a movie for as little money as possible and have it gross, you know, a hundred million, $500 million. You know, it, everything had to be supercharged at that point. And then it was about creating a brand and selling toys and sheets and merchandise and all, you know, and then a TV show. And right. so it stopped being about stories and it started becoming a product. Now I don't blame George Lucas. He just didn't, but he just was telling a story he wanted to tell. It just fundamentally changed the industry. And if you notice now, you know, the kinds of movies that got made, just the categories got smaller and smaller. We want big action adventures. We want, you know, cheap horror movies. We want big, dumb comedies. You know, occasionally they do a, a romantic comedy, but those things started to get pushed away because most romantic comedies don't gross a hundred million dollars, you know? And so all of a sudden the calculations had less to do with what's gonna be a great story that's gonna attract people to come to the theater and what's going to be this blockbuster that we can make sequels of forever and ever and ever? Batman, Marvel Comics, so forth. I mean, some of those movies are wonderful movies. Don't misunderstand me. But a lot of those movies, you sit there and you go, there's no story here. There's just right. a series of episodes. A lot of stuff gets blown up. A lot of people get beat up, you know, and the, the hero survives at the end. But but there's no beginning, middle, and end. It's not really a story. They're just selling a product and you go okay so the movies in that way the movies have changed and curiously enough television has started to do much more interesting things you know because there was cable and now they're streaming and it's like okay we can afford to do really niche kind of interesting potentially controversial or you know unique storytelling because we're not competing with the movies that have to go out and make hundred million dollars you know in the first weekend sure. so i think that's a bigger change than you know identity politics or all of that stuff hopefully as a result of the pandemic and black lives matter and all of these things more people who have unique voices come from different backgrounds will get an opportunity to tell their stories and Hollywood will open to women, Latinos, so forth and so on. You know, that I think is a very good thing. But then again, at the end of the day, it's do you have a good story? You know, right. now let me ask you, because you mentioned the pandemic with theaters uh, hurting as badly as they are. And we've got the. Uh, the Warner Media AT and T decision to go day and date with all of their 2021 slate. You've got 17 movies that are going to hit theaters and HBO Max, and there's this big meltdown and blow up over that. <clears throat> uh, something that we talked about Monday night: uh, the possibility. And let me and let me get your read on this. Uh, it, would there be a, a likelihood? that given now we've got these corporate entities that are looking at the bottom line, is this an opportunity for the movie industry to sort of do a reset and say, okay, we can't afford to do the $400 million blockbuster films. Let's go back and start with 20, 40, $50 million budgets, and we can do some of these smaller films. So we're not out as much in the expense 
and maybe we make our money back, even if it's doing day and date theatrical and streaming, we're not putting out as much risk involved in making these stories. Is that a possible outcome from all of this, maybe? Yeah, I would say there are a lot of potential outcomes for this because, you know, none of us have ever been through anything like the pandemic that we're dealing with now. I mean, this is a global reset on a lot of things, which means some things are going to fall by the wayside and new opportunities and possibilities are going to be created. And I really think it's too soon to say with any kind of, you know, certainty or authority how this is all going to play itself out. I think the studios are just sitting there going, we got to try something. Right. <laughs> you know? So let's try this and see if it works. And if it doesn't, then we can go back to the other thing or we can do the other thing and something new. I think everybody's just scrambling. I really do. And, and, you know, they have to make decisions saying this, what looks, this looks to us like a, a logical step under the, underneath the circumstances we're in, because Realistically speaking, lots of people are not going to be flowing back into movie theaters for the better part of, you know, six to nine months until this vaccine or other vaccines are widely disseminated and and they go, okay, people are just not getting sick anymore. Then we can start to open things up, but it's going to be a process. It's not going to happen overnight. I think that's obvious. And so I think Hollywood is just doing whatever they can do to try and ride this wave and see where it lands them. But I can't tell you with any certainty where I think Hollywood's going to go. And I don't know that anybody else can, except that the streaming services have clearly, you know, benefited from this because we've all been stuck at home and what else are you going to do? You know, there's that and they're becoming global entities now. And, you know, when you have a company like Apple and Amazon that are trillion dollar companies, you know, even a very successful movie studio, Disney, Disney's worth, I don't know, $80 billion, $90 billion. If you're a trillion dollar company, that's lunch, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, so it's entirely possible that, you know, the big ones are going to these massive technology companies may simply swallow Hollywood whole at some point. That's entirely possible, but I don't even know if that's going to happen. But, you know, if you're a Warner Brothers and you're an AT&T and you're going, okay, we're a very well-funded company, but we're not worth a trillion dollars, you know, and if Amazon comes along and says, okay, we're going to buy, you know, all your entertainment assets for, $500 billion. Okay, we can do that, you know, or whatever that number is. I don't know. But you understand what I'm saying? I do, yes. That's the calculation that's going on now. How do we make ourselves either valuable so that we're not swallowed up or valuable enough that we will be swallowed up? I want to go back to to your point about uh, the corporations treating the the movie pro- the movies as a product. It's a commodity. Uh, we and going to the AT and T example, you know, selling Crunchyroll to Sony. They're looking to offset Directv, you know, offload Directv. 
There are rumors they could sell DC Comics at some point, although I don't know that that's actually going to happen. Uh, I have I have frequently said that Hollywood tends to learn the wrong lessons from something that happens, and Christopher Nolan even said that you know, w- with regard to Tenet. He said, you know, Hollywood's going to learn the wrong thing from this. And uh, you go back to this idea of the franchise and the idea, that, you know, something that's going to bring in all of the audience. And looking back over the years, I mean, MacGyver even, you have a remake of MacGyver. You've got a remake of Magnum P.I. Uh, you go back to Starsky and Hutch and the Dukes of Hazard. You know, we're hearing now that Seth MacFarlane is rebooting Revenge of the Nerds. We've got two reboots of Battlestar Galactica in the works. There's a rumor about Firefly and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We've got Disney making live-action remakes of all of their animated features. You know, there's a rumor of Knight Rider. All of these different things. Is Hollywood creatively bankrupt at this point? Are they sitting there going, "Well, we're just gonna we're just gonna deal in member berries for the rest of our lives here because Pepperidge Farm remembers, and we're hoping that the audience does too, and they'll come give us our money." Because they know this name. They recognize Knight Rider. They recognize Akira. It doesn't matter if we get it right or not, but the title, that's what's on the, that's what's on the can. Yeah, so I would say, look, if you're a Hollywood executive, you say, I'm going to, you know, I can only take so many risks and keep my job, Right. So, so understandably, they're going to say, what has brand recognition, what has a built-in audience, and I should put at least a significant um, part of my, you know, my resources into something that looks safer rather than not. There are no guarantees that any of these remakes, reboots, sequels, you know, they're not all necessarily going to work. That said, because the need for content seems so enormous at this point. Lots of new voices are getting opportunities. Lots of little niche things are getting made, mostly in streaming, some in cable, a few in networks, okay? But the fact is there's more fascinating stuff out there. And because of the technology, you can make two or three or four seasons of something and maybe it doesn't blow up at first but someday suddenly an audience finds it and goes wow this is awesome (laughs) (laughs) you know we're gonna watch it all and then some executive goes hey look at this this thing was sitting you know it was just sitting there on the in the server farm and suddenly it's been discovered by half the world and they love it let's go make some more of those you know so so no in one sense i don't think hollywood Per se, I mean, the corporate side of it is always looking to protect their downside. Okay, But the fact is the need for so much content, because Netflix is like, hey, we're going to spend billions and billions of dollars every year to make new content. Inevitably, there's going to be all kinds of different, interesting, exciting, you know, things. And so in a sense, it's like, yeah, on the one side the big money is going to always sort of tend to go towards those reboots, sequels, brands, all that stuff. But all these other little things are popping up, you know, and you just never know which one of those is going to break through the concrete and say, boy, there's a rose. We never saw that one. So, so I think the creative 
juices of the world are flowing just fine. I don't really see it as a problem. Yeah. Uh, do you see as a problem uh, the the concern uh, to not tick off China as far as trying to get into that marketplace with with movies? And there's been a lot of you know noise online, back and forth criticisms about you know like, uh, Disney's Mulan came under fire for some of their comments and some different things there. You know some of the some of the concessions that have to be made to the Chinese government in order to make this movie, in order to even get into the market. We saw recently with Monster Hunter getting all of their stuff canceled because of one one line, one joke or something that was in there. Uh, are, are, do we? Does Hollywood put too much emphasis on what China thinks about what we make, do you think? Well, not 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 to not to put a landmine right under your foot or anything, but (laughs) no, listen, I you know, I I don't know a whole lot about the Chinese audience. I have read the same articles you have that that there's this tension or anxiety of if we want to be in that marketplace, then we're going to have to dance to their tune. You know, in a sense, that's unfortunate, but. Hollywood has danced to somebody's tune since its beginning. You know, there's always been, where is the culture now? What is the culture willing to accept? I mean, if you wanted to make a movie back in the, you know, in the fifties about homosexuality, they would have went, no, we're not making that movie, you know, because the culture is just not going to respond to it. So that's always been a factor in, in what you do. And the answer is, if you have stories that you want to tell that happen to be things that the Chinese won't like, then you know what? They won't show them in China. They show them around the rest of the world. It still has cultural impact because some Chinese are watching them. You know, the, the, the people who are paid to watch what the West is doing is saying, oh, boy, there's a story out there. We better start, you know, doing counter programming. And that's always going to be the case. Is it unfortunate that a writer, producer, director has to walk those lines in one sense? Yes. But in another sense, They've always been walking those lines. So it's just the parameters are different, but they're still parameters. So. All right. So now now you mentioned the current version of MacGyver has gone five seasons. You talk about audience finding things uh, even after a while they've been out. How involved are you with the with the current series? You wrote the pilot for the original. You're credited as creator. You haven't done a whole lot with that one. How how involved are you in the in the current version? I'm I'm so I'm credited as an executive producer on the show, um, in part because I was the creator of the original. But I am not actively involved in the day to day, nor was I actively involved in the creative decisions when they when they did the reboot because I thought my gut at the time was that they could have done something a lot more potentially more interesting uh, and innovative. And essentially they took kind of, it seemed to me the sort of CBS action formula of we have a team of people and they go into, you know, adventures and we keep the, the bad guys really bad and the good guys really good. And, you know, not too many grays in there. And I thought, okay, look, if that's the way you guys want to go, go with it. They didn't particularly want or need my input. And I said, that's fine. You know, it's yours to do it in that situation. It's yours to do it as you, as you please. And, uh, and I think initially, as I said, a lot of the fans of the original series 
didn't find themselves completely taken by it. But over time, it's obviously still attracted an audience. And so it's like, okay, great. At least they didn't, you know, they didn't make MacGyver start using a gun in the new (laughs) series. Although, you know, with Jack Dalton and to a certain extent, the other characters around him, they all use guns. So there's a lot of gunplay in this series. Okay. I probably would have done it a little differently, but, you know, they wanted to kind of, sort of stick to a formula that they felt comfortable with. And so that's what they did. And it obviously seems to be working. So not for me to say you should have done it this way, you should have done it that way. So long as they don't, in my mind, violate what I consider sort of the core values of MacGyver, I'm good with it. I I remember thinking to myself when that uh, show was first announced, Lucas Till looks awful young to be playing that character. And I'm thinking that that I just don't know how it works. But I mean, obviously it has for, you know, going on five seasons now. Um, Do they still hold to this notion that MacGyver's tricks and gadgets and, and improvisations still have some scientific basis like you did in the original show? Yes. As far as I can tell, it's it's. Um, I mean, the kind of rule of thumb I had when I was developing the pilot was it doesn't have to be possible. It just has to be plausible. You sure. know? <laughs> <laughs> and and it seems to me, I mean, I know I've, I've worked with the, the science advisors that they use on the new series. And yes, for the most part, that what he does is really grounded in, you know, in uh, factual science. Now. Would it always necessarily play out exactly the way it plays out? No, it's television. You know, come on, you got to just, you got to cut some slack there. Sure. They're telling a story, you know. But, but, yes, my sense is for the most part, you know, look, uh, Tony Stark is called an engineer. Okay, <laughs> great. So he puts his arm out and a suit forms around him and he flies. Okay. Well, guess what? We can't really quite do that yet. Right. Okay. So (laughs) you could say he's an engineer, but that's magic. You know, he just puts his arm out, a suit forms around him and then he flies. He's a superhero. Now there are guys who have jetpacks on and they're flying across the English channel. So, okay. There's some variation of that that may exist, but you understand what I'm saying. Sure. There's a difference between something based in science and something that's just kind of magical. All right. And yeah. uh, and Tony Stark is, to me, more on the magical side and MacGyver's a little bit more on the science side. That's all. Now, how much research into the scientific aspects of the things of the of the improvisations did you do for the new book? Are there are there a lot of these things or are these just randomly scattered throughout the story? Oh, no, there's. I mean, there's plenty of what we call MacGyverisms, you know, and we did uh, mostly Eric, to his credit. So Eric has, you know, a science engineering background. So A, that was why he was passionate about the character to begin with. And B, it was like, oh, man, I'd love to come up with MacGyverisms. It's like, (laughs) let's do this. Let's do that. I go, okay, slow down, Eric. Like, explain to me what the science is underneath this. And let's make sure that the reader has some grasp of why this is going to work, because it's obvious and evident to you but it's not obvious and evident to me because you know i'm not an engineer or a scientist so i'm a storyteller right and so the that was it but so he had no shortage of those and and we used as many of them as felt right for the story uh now i had read uh somewhere you mentioned the macgyver musical mm-hmm 
I have also read that Lionsgate was working on a MacGyver movie. Is is yeah. that still uh, is that still on the books? Is that still happening at some point? No, or no? I, I had a deal. Uh, so I had a, a an option for a MacGyver movie with Lionsgate, which lasted, I think, about three years. Um, and then they ultimately said, because of the TV series, that's a whole drama in itself, which should be saved for another time. But because of the TV series, they went, you know what, we're not sure now is the right time to do a movie. So, excuse me. Um, so the movie rights are once again mine. And uh, when the time is right, I will uh, I will make a MacGyver movie. But, uh, but you know, it had a... It had a three or four year run at New Line years ago, and they never managed to produce uh, a MacGyver movie that I thought was uh, worth doing anyway. So that went away. And then and then actually it was because of a MacGyver Foundation project that we did in 2015 that Lionsgate suddenly got interested. And, the, and that really ultimately kind of led to the creation of the new series. Um, but uh, but at the moment, there are no specific plans for a MacGyver movie, except that in the back of my mind, I'm working on it. And at some point when the circumstances are right, there will be a MacGyver movie. And hopefully it will have some delicious surprises for all those MacGyver fans out there. So and, just stay tuned, people. <laughs> and that gives, that gives me the opening to go where I wanted to go next with the MacGyver Foundation. So this is a, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Where, tell me about this. How did this come about? Because this is the, a lot of TV shows don't usually generate this other kind of activity. How did this happen? Well, it came about, um, and by the way, just so we're clear, we have submitted our application to the IRS, so we are te technically a nonprofit organization, but we are 501c3 pending. I, okay, I okay. see that so now. We, yes. we think we have every reason to believe they're going to give us the rubber stamp and say you're good to go, but we can function as a nonprofit charity for quite some time. I think it's like two and a half years until, and, and during that time, the IRS then you know reviews our situation. But why did the MacGyver Foundation come about? The answer was, I looked at why MacGyver became so popular globally, okay? And number one was, he didn't use a gun. Now, I wasn't doing that for political or moral reasons. That was purely dramatic. Okay, if he doesn't have a gun, then he's going to have to find another way to, you know, overcome obstacles and beat the bad guys, okay? And so, and every week you go, oh, well, he's going to make something. So you got a nice hook. What's he going to do this week? Because he can't simply pull out a gun and shoot everybody, right? Okay. Um, turns out that most of the world, unlike America, most of the world doesn't have access to firearms, doesn't particularly want access to firearms. And so that made the character very interesting and accessible. And then, of course, there was the, okay, that ingenuity, resourcefulness, how do I use what's around me to get out of a difficult situation? And again, you know, here in Western developed countries, we want something, we go to a store, we buy it. It breaks, we throw it out, we go buy something else. Right. Most of the world, it's like, yeah, we don't have that luxury, people. You know, we do what MacGyver does every day just to survive. So they got that, you know, and that became, you know, another sort of what I would call a MacGyver core principle. And then the last one was that, 
regardless of how life-threatening or intractable the situation MacGyver was in, he always maintained a sense of humor and humility. Okay, so Jason, I have four grown children. I now have four grandchildren, okay? I looked at this century and I said, this is a critical century. We get this century right, this thing we call civilization with, you know, cell phones and all that cool stuff right. and internet. We get this century right, that has a future. We don't get this century right, I'm not so sure that's going to survive. There have been lots of civilizations on this planet. All of them thought they would last forever. None of them did. Okay, yeah. so civilizations, too, have timelines on. Okay, but I'm looking at my grandchildren and everybody else's grandchildren. I'm saying, hmm, why did MacGyver become so globally embraced? And it was like, didn't pick up a gun, so avoid conflict. Why? Because conflict usually just leads to more conflict. And right now, even if you win the war, the house is still on fire. Okay, we still have global problems we have to solve. So, okay, I thought that was probably a good management tool. And then ingenuity, resourcefulness. How do you turn what you have into what you need? Because guess what? As individuals, as communities, as countries, as a world, that's what we're going to have to do if this civilization is going to survive. We're going to have to collaborate, we're going to have to work together, and we're going to have to figure out how to turn what we all have into what we need. Right. And then the third thing was, hmm, if you can maintain a sense of humor and humility, the fact is a laughing and open mind is a lot more likely to come up with a really good solution than a frightened, resentful, or angry mind. So I said, you know what? These are good management tools for this century if we as a civilization are going to survive. And since, with the exception of the TV series, I own all the rights to MacGyver, I went, for the sake of my grandchildren and your grandchildren and everybody else's grandchildren, I'm going to bring MacGyver back on as many platforms as I can as an entertainment character for the most part and just remind everybody, avoid conflict, try to figure out how to turn what you have into what you need, and for God's sake, try and maintain a sense of humor and humility. And I thought these are important tools for us as individuals, as a globe, as countries, these are important values to maintain. And so I said, why don't we create a foundation and that will encourage both organizations and individuals to use those core values because the world already responded to them in a positive way. So it's like, this is just reminding everybody, remember what you loved about MacGyver? Well, you can use that right now. And with the pandemic, that's become even more clear, okay? We are all in this together. We all have to MacGyver stuff that we never thought we'd have to deal with because we just thought, oh, civilization, I just go to the store, food's there, toilet paper, not a problem, <laughs> you know? It's like, guess what, people? Right. We got to look at things a little differently. So that was the genesis of the MacGyver Foundation. And what are some of the initiatives that the foundation is involved in? I'm seeing the next MacGyver competition. What what kind of things does the foundation do in terms of operation? Right. So so uh, in 2015, um, I was approached by the USC Viterbi School of Engineering, National Academy of Engineering, and they said, look, nearly half the world's population, namely females, are not being encouraged to go into engineering. In fact, they're being discouraged. And the truth is, we need that brain power if we're going to survive. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so maybe we could do some kind of a script contest to see if people could create a kind of female engineer type hero, not MacGyver per se, but like MacGyver, to encourage women to consider going into the engineering and the sciences in the same way that CSI, which my God is still going on as a franchise, you know, there are literally tens of thousands of young people who want to become forensic scientists because the model was on the screen. These people are hot, they're sexy, they don't have to shoot people, but they solve crimes. Okay. Right. And so, you know, the number of forensic schools in the United States and around the world has exploded because of that show. So those things can make a difference. So we said, let's see if we can run a script competition to create a female engineer type hero that would inspire women to go in. It was a very successful project. We got 2000 entries from around the world. We picked 12 finalists, five winners. We partnered them with, you know, top television producers. Unfortunately, I don't think any of those ultimately turned into a television series. But because of that, we got 500,000 media hits worldwide. And because of that, that's why Lionsgate came to me and said, hey, what about a MacGyver movie? Actually, it was Neil Moritz's company, um, original film. And, and, and that's when CBS said, hey, maybe we should do a reboot of this series. The reboot was a young man, but he was surrounded by, you know, capable and talented women. Okay, so we didn't get all the way there, but we got part of the way there. Sure. So that was that. And now the next project, which we're going to launch sometime, I think, in early 2021, is called MacGyver Heroes. And so we're looking to ultimately acknowledge and at least with some cool MacGyver swag, reward people in, in medicine, uh, essential workers, educators, and just ordinary people who had to find a way to MacGyver something during the pandemic. And it's like, yep, that's, we all had to do things. Tell us your stories. Both we and the, and, and all of you will get to vote on which we think are the best stories. And we'll give them some cool, at the very least, some cool MacGyver swag to acknowledge that you stepped up and you MacGyvered a very difficult situation. So that's what the, that's what the new project is going to be about. And what are some of the other opportunities that the foundation is looking to get in terms of the things that you want to do? This is this is certainly a, a good beginning of raising awareness. But there, are there particular initiatives that you all have talked about that we we really want to do X? Yeah, there are a few things we've talked about. It's sort of premature to say we're going to do X, Y, or Z because our focus right now is on this next project. I will tell you that I have been approached by people to say, should we establish a MacGyver Institute? Because we agree with you about these core values and we think there's something positive here. That's just the earliest conversations. We are very interested, for instance, in... Um, so we've got seven and a half, give or take, billion people on the planet. Somewhere around a billion, a billion and a half people don't have adequate housing. Housing literally costs too much right now. The way we build houses is too carbon intensive, cost intensive, material intensive. 
So there are a number of really interesting individuals, organizations that are saying, how do we solve this problem? How do we create housing that is sustainable, that is cheap, that we can provide because, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, there's going to be 2 billion people who need houses. Okay. So that's one of the things we're talking about, but we're not, we're not there yet, but that's a perfect example of the kind of thing is like, are there people who are figuring out really clever, innovative ways? So there are people who are literally 3d printing houses. Okay, because that's a very fast way to make a house. There are people in in Indonesia who have found a way to preserve bamboo so they can use it as a building material. Okay, well, bamboo is not a tree. It's actually a grass and it's a very sustainable material. So there are interesting things being done around the world. We may at some future time do a project to really highlight all those things because sustainable housing is obviously an issue. So sure. now does, uh, does any portion of the, of the book sales go to the foundation or, or no? Yeah. So the yes. answer is any MacGyver project I'm involved with that, that has my name on it anywhere, a portion of those proceeds go into the MacGyver foundation whether it's from the reboot TV series, from whatever residuals or everything comes off the original series, from this book, from the musical, some portion of that flows to me and directly into the foundation. So the answer is yes, okay? Every, every MacGyver project that has my name on it in one way or another is going, some part of it is going to the foundation. All right. And the current project that has your name on it, along with MacGyver's, is MacGyver Meltdown. It is a book that is now currently out uh, in, uh, I believe, trade paperback and Kindle versions are available. So that is uh, is the current piece. And, of course, uh, the MacGyver... Uh, website MacGyverGlobal.com where you can find out all of the information about uh, the books, the comic books, the foundation, and everything else uh, related to both series and various other projects. Uh, so uh, so you can check that out. And we do have a link to this website in our show notes. So uh, you can follow that. Lee Zoltov, thank you very much for being here, sir. My pleasure, Jason. I really thanks for, appreciate it. Thanks for checking it out. All right. And tomorrow we are going to have, speaking of uh, uh, Melinda Snodgrass, she is going to be our guest tomorrow, and we'll be talking about her work. In the meantime, we do invite you to subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet uh, on your way out. If you want to leave us a thumbs up, share the link to the videos. And we have a number of programs here throughout the week. We will... Uh, have a new TARDIS sauce with a Doctor Who discussion this week and uh, a wrap-up of the news headlines on Saturday morning for Good Morning Multiverse. And we will be talking about the latest ed- uh, episode of The Mandalorian Friday night on The Ranker Pit. So until all of those come out, we will continue to push buttons here and beat the gremlins back. And uh, we will be back for more tomorrow. And remember this one thing. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. Back tomorrow. Thanks for being here. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.